The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it's still one of my favorite moments on the History of Literature podcast when I asked Yang Wang what it was like for her to grow up in communist China and why her gift for storytelling was unlocked only when she began writing in English. She didn't trust her mind in Chinese, she said. The oppression of a people forced to write in an oblique, coded language had affected the way she thought. Stories would not come out right. Truths could not be apprehended directly. Now we have another example, this time a poet, who gave a different response. Irina Mashinsky was born in the Soviet Union. She grew up speaking and reading and writing in Russian, and life took her to the United States and the English-speaking world. Unlike Yang, she has a different relationship with her native tongue. She's here to discuss her journey and her new collection of poetry and essays today on The History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. Glad you joined us today. I'm doing this episode a little ahead of time since I'm traveling this week. Just a quick trip on the way to pick up my beloved eldest and go to visit my parents, his grandparents, so they can see what a fine young man he's become. It seems like only yesterday that I was hauling him there in his swaddling clothes to show them that he could now focus his eyes and hold his head upright. Life moves quickly. Life moves quickly and unpredictably. Irina Mashinsky is an American writer, poet, essayist, teacher, and translator. She's the author of 11 books of poetry and essays in Russian, and she's the co-editor of the Penguin Book of Russian Poetry, among many other publications and interests and endeavors. I really, really enjoyed talking to her, and her book, The Naked World, is wonderful. Here's a quote from poet Ilya Kaminsky. Quote, the Naked World is a magical book, a story of four generations of one family told through poems and cut through with accounts of Stalin's great terror of the 30s, wide-ranging meditations, and flashes of childhood memories from the thaw of the 60s and the post-thaw 70s, end quote. Irene is going to read some of that to us as part of our talk, but some literary news before we begin. Gabriel Garcia Marquez has overtaken Miguel de Cervantes to become the most translated Spanish-language writer of the century so far. Cervantes and his Don Quixote held that status for 80 years, apparently, and now it's Gabo. Very interesting. They've tracked this since 1950, apparently. Here's a great literary phrase I wasn't aware of. They chose 1950 as the start date because they wanted to take advantage of the numerous translations that came out in the 1960s and 70s, which is when Garcia Marquez, Mario Vargas Llosa, Carlos Fuentes, Julio Cortazar, and others broke through into international fame. That phenomenon, I was aware of the phenomenon, but not of the phrase for it. Apparently it is known as El Boom. How great is that? El Boom. Actually, Cervantes is now in fifth place in this century. He's still number one over the period of 80 years, which makes sense why he would slide in more recent years. People already own Cervantes. He's widely available. You don't need a lot of new translations. More recent authors have an advantage in that sense. Their works are just coming out. They're winning prizes. People are catching up. If you're interested, the top 10 writers, this is a look at translations that were made into 10 different languages from Spanish into 10 different languages just between 2000 and 2021. Top 10, Garcia Marquez, number one. Isabel Allende is number two. I think we're overdue for an episode on her, by the way. Fantastic writer. Three, Jorge Luis Borges. Four, Mario Vargas Llosa. Five, Cervantes, pretty impressive to finish fifth on this list, actually. He's Shakespearean in reach and longevity. Six is Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Seven is Arturo Perez Riverte. Eight is Luis Sepulveda. Hope I'm pronouncing all these correctly. Nine, I'm more comfortable with the pronunciation Roberto Bolaño, one of Mike's favorites. And ten, 
Speaking of Mike's favorites, Javier Marias. We've done episodes on both of those authors. Thanks to Mike. Things change if you look at individual languages, of course. In Italy, Manuel Vasquez Montalban makes the list. Thanks, no doubt, in large part to Andrea Camilleri, who named his detective Inspector Montalbano in honor of that writer. Led to a little surge in interest in Manuel. You might have noticed Federico Garcia Lorca and Pablo Neruda were not on the list. Well, those two are on the list of most translated Spanish language authors of the last 80 years, but they have not been translated enough recently to make the top 10. The study also looked at women authors, where we have a few of our familiar names, including Sister Juana Inés de la Cruz, who came in at 8th. We have an episode on her in our archives. One other note, Julio Cortazar was not on any of the lists, although he was part of El Boom. I've probably betrayed my age a bit in past discussions. When I've mentioned him, he was still big when I was in college, and I read him for some assigned readings, and Mike and I have mentioned him from time to time. I've been told by some of my previous guests that he's not as fashionable as he once was in the Spanish-speaking world, or in the translations into other languages' world either, it seems. Fascinating. All this talk of translation is a good prelude for our guest, who is herself a translator. We also have, coming up, a conversation with the translator of a recent Nobel Prize winner. I won't give it away. Actually, we have two. I won't give them away yet, but the one I've spoken with so far is wonderful. A delight to talk to, as was today's guest. Irina Mashinsky is next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Irina Mashinsky, a bilingual, Russophone, American writer, poet, essayist, teacher, and translator whose works include The Naked World and Jornata, in addition to 11 books of poetry and essays in Russian. She's also the co-editor of The Penguin Book of Russian Poetry. Irina Mashinsky, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. It's, it's an honor and it's a delight. So I'm fascinated by your journey and how it interweaves with Russian history and, and poetry and translations and your life in America and your own work. So why don't we start with a little bit about you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Moscow, uh, Russia. I was born right in the center of Moscow. And when I was nine, we moved to the outskirts of Moscow, which was a very different world. It was a blend of a countryside, you would say, and, mm. and city. Uh, Khrushchev, uh, barrack-like barrack -like, uh, buildings, five-story buildings that every uh, ex-Soviet uh, citizen knows. And uh, that was a strange blend because it was a city, but at the same time, there was this girl in my class who would, uh, whose chore was to fetch water from the well in the morning, and mm. we, you could hear roosters. But then, of course, it gradually became part of Moscow, an integral part of Moscow. So it was the first, I wouldn't say it, it was very dramatic migration, but certainly it was a big change. 
What kind of childhood did it feel like to you? Did it feel like it was harsh and full of deprivations or did it seem idyllic or what, what did it seem like to you as a child? Oh, it was neither uh, mm. one of these things. It certainly was, it wasn't deprivation. It was, it was rather scarce world uh, that every Soviet person lived at the time. And my parents were part of this rather tightly knit group uh, circle of uh, Soviet intelligentsia. Mm. And these people were, they were people of modest means, but there was certainly no deprivation. But I wouldn't call it idyllic either. Yeah. It was life within a bigger bubble. It was a small bubble with this huge uh, cage rather than a bubble of the Soviet regime. And uh, everyone tried to, to live their own lives. But of course, it was always felt the outer cage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what did your ancestors face? They faced different things. Some of them were spared by the terror, great terror, and lived rather on... It's just their lives were not disrupted by exiles, arrests, and uh, things like that, executions. And the uh, other part, actually, I have, as most people, I have four uh, grandparents. So my paternal grandparents went through this meat grinder uh, all, you know, all the way. And... uh, their siblings too. And my maternal grandparents lived rather, I wouldn't say comfortably, but it was their lives were not interrupted in such dramatic and tragic way. Mm -hmm. And did their lives and legacy affect the experience that you were having? Of course. When I was a child, my parents chose not to tell me those stories and not even tell me uh, their views of the regime, which was obviously uh, very clear. They wanted me not even to shield me, though that was also a one of the reasons and uh, out of out of even uh, caution, because my father, for example, would sometimes suggest that I, I be careful what I write in my school compositions because whatever is said is said but whatever is written is is a document mm. although it was already vegetarian times as Ahmato called them but they also wanted me to figure it out for myself they didn't want to brainwash me even in a good way mm-hmm. and my eyes opened abruptly just overnight i would say when i was about 14 mm. and what happened then Actually, I remember that day. It was a very, nothing dramatic happened at the time. I was at school. I somehow had to be present in this, at the meeting of the Young Communist League uh, meeting of all, all the kids. And there was something in their behavior and their demeanor that was so fake and felt so, so wrong oh. that I, I rather sensed that, understood that this is something I don't want to be part of. Right. I really can't put my finger on it, but it's, I, I remember that day. So I'm absolutely sure that this is when it all starts. And I, I was determined not to become a member of the Young Communist League, but it was mandatory. You wouldn't be able to graduate or enroll in a university or college. So it was, but then I dropped out quietly in the first year of university. Yeah. So you had a sense that the people here, they don't necessarily believe what they're saying or or everything feels like a bit of a facade? Yes. And also there was something quietly sinister about all that. Mm. I really cannot, I really cannot explain. Yeah. There was this huge banner in the corner, a red banner. And I remember looking, staring at this banner and there was something very very um, uncomfortable about that. And I remember that I hadn't felt that before. So it was really a very strange moment. Yeah. Did you have anyone you could turn to then? Did you feel like your parents were a a resource for you at that point? Uh, Yes, of course. I I was always close um, to my parents. So I opened up to them. I opened up to their friends. And I had a childhood friend who came to our school when we were in the seventh grade, who is still my best friend. We went to her house. I think it was on the first day of our meeting. Her her name is Olga. And her father, who was a scientist, he had this glass bookshelf with glass doors. And those doors were locked. 
and he would hide the key from from his children because he had a lot of summers dot uh, band literature there. Yeah. But his uh, children, my friend and her brother, younger brother, they somehow managed to snatch the key to make a copy of it and have access to these books. So the first thing that we did when we came to her house, we opened, she proudly opened the doors of the bookshelf and I was able to touch and to leap through those books. I didn't actually, I didn't even tell her, her father yet. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's an incredible story. The story of the, the copied key and the children who have access to the books. What Do you remember what any of the titles were? Well, of course, I, I don't remember the title. I do remember there was Solzhenitsyn there, and in uh-huh. more than one titles, um, there was, of course, the Gulag Archipelago there. I think uh, there was Cancer Ward. But uh, my, uh, of course, my memory is modeled here because I remember my parents reading those books. It was like a walking library. I was already probably in the eighth grade or ninth grade, yeah. maybe a little bit younger, but I do remember my parents at night, spending the night between two work days. They, they had to go to work in the morning, but they would spend the night reading a book that was uh, they would borrow for one night. And that was a Thomas Dodd book. You know, Thomas Dodd is published there. Tom is there. And Thomas Dodd is published by oneself. Mm. So it's self-publishing, Thomas Dodd, and Thomas Dodd is published there. So it was uh, one of those books smuggled from Thomas Dodd, from abroad, Mm. always uh, copied and many, many copies, uh, blind copies, as we call them, very light font, not Xeroxes. Xeroxes were out of reach for uh, citizens, right. but they were banned. But photocopies, so sometimes, for example, the first time I read Nabokov, I read the photocopy. So I would have to literally hold with my two hands though each page so it doesn't roll. Uh, you know how for the for the paper yeah. tends to roll, become a roll. So I would hold it very press, very strongly to to keep it flat. And I remember them reading uh, Cancel Ward. I do remember the title in the first circle, another uh, novel by Solzhenitsyn. But there was also Animal Farm, which I remember clearly that they were reading Animal Farm, of course, in the Russian translation. Yeah. Right. So what books were you allowed to read, in, in especially in terms of literature, in terms of novels or poetry or, or sh- short stories? Did you have an experience with literature before you were 14? Oh, oh yes. Again, my parents had a rather small library. I wouldn't, it was rather a family book than a collection. Mm-hmm. Their bookshelf, I remember every book binding there, where mm. it was. Um, so it was a very intimate collection, very well uh, carefully chosen. Some of them were from my mom's, for example, youth or teen, teen years, even with her inscription. I was exposed to that. Uh, they both were lovers of literature. My mom loved poetry uh, and uh, literature in general, but especially poetry. My father, who was an architect, he had great knowledge of everything that had to do with visual arts, but he was also a lover of literature, but more like a connoisseur. And uh, my mom knew it maybe a little bit. They taste different. Mm-hmm. But but myself, um, my first experience with the effect that a book can have was when I was six. I, I taught myself to read when I was about five, four or five just playing with wooden blocks. And I was an introvert always by myself until I was five. And when I was six, I was admitted to children's hospital and they thought that I had an infectious, I don't remember what it was, but it was something infectious. And they put me in this solitary which, uh, solitary room, which is called box, a box in, in Russian, with glass walls, interestingly. And the door that opened right into the street of the summer Moscow. And some Moscows in summer are lovely. It's it's hard to imagine now, but they were at least. And my parents and grandparents would bring me books. And one of the books was Yershov, uh, Pyotr Yershov, who was a younger contemporary of Pushkin, magic fairy tale mm-hmm. uh, poem 
the um, the little hand-backed horse. And it's a masterpiece. Pushkin said that after he read it, and Yashov wrote it when he was 19, and Pushkin said when he read it that he would not write any more magic tales anymore because oh, right. uh, he couldn't do better than Yashov did. There was something, there were a few lines. I do remember those lines, of course. Everybody does. There are magic lines in that poem that had this strange effect on me. I couldn't understand what it was. It was certainly mesmerizing, but it was something about a physical impact of those two lines. Their rhythm, their texture, that had such a strong effect on me that I kept rereading it and rereading it, rereading it, trying to understand why these two simple lines, they, they produced this strange, almost electric effect. And I guess the, the rest just followed. I I was looking for this kind of things in, in books and in poetry especially, and probably subconsciously or later consciously tried to produce or reproduce yeah. some kinds of a similar effects on a fantasy reader. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember when you started writing poetry? More or less at the same time. Well, I, I wouldn't call it poetry, of course, but um, yeah. those were <laughs> those were right lines um, about that time. Five, six, yeah. yeah, right. And what were you writing about at that age? Oh, a, a, anything, <laughs> a, anything. Birds, uh, some imaginary, more imaginary things than. Yeah, yeah, right. And in school. Were there was the equivalent of we might call it required reading or or assigned reading or something? Were there any novels and poetry that made the cut, so to speak? Were there were there approved authors that all the school children were reading? Yes, of course, everything was mandatory. Everything was required and assigned, and that was the the horrible thing about it. Because, for example, one's first encounter with Tolstoy was in this kind of an environment and uh, that of course ruined everything for many years but there were still good moments when i could feel something even though it was in the setting of a soviet uh, rather dull and sometimes there was something very gloomy about those classrooms especially mm. especially uh, my first year when we went when we moved to the outskirts before my parents moved me to a good school where English was taught early and before I had studied French, uh, they, there was this transitional school that was very uh, overcrowded and they had a few shifts. Uh, so I started school at about 2 or 3 p.m. And it, during Moscow's uh, winter, about uh, 4 or 5, it's already dark. So yeah. I remember all my, some of the moments, memorable moments, I remember them against the background of, of very dark windows. Yeah, right. Some effect on the text. Yeah, that must have been so vivid. I, I remember school for me was always over. It was still daylight out, but I can remember going into the school for the Christmas pageant, and that was always at 7.30 p.m. or something. And I can remember that feeling of being in the school with those dark windows and feeling like there was sort of a hush around the school, but also it just felt very different from a school during the day. Yes, and in some gloomy way, it also made it memorable. Maybe this is why I remembered some moments, for example, with a particular poem by Pushkin, because I remember looking, staring at the at dark, dark window, and the poem was about blizzard. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so right. it was very fitting. Yeah. Did you have a group of fellow poets and people who were interested in poetry, or did you feel like this was something you had sort of by yourself? It was rather a private uh, mm -hmm. part of my life, but and I'm by just by temperament, I'm not a, a group person, I'm not a studio person. However, in the early 80s, I did join a studio, but I wouldn't say that, that the members of that group, it was an underground group, of course, they were from different professions, and they were all interested in literature, but more so even in in the history of culture. Mm -hmm. Our uh, the the teacher, uh, so to speak, the person who led the studio, 
gave lectures on on the history of culture, uh, different culture, not 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 the Russian culture, you know. So that was, but of course, literature was a big part of it. How dangerous was it to have to attend meetings like that? Well, I was summoned to the um to to the regional party uh, committee. But it, it was not dangerous, dangerous, but mm-hmm. uh, we kept moving. We had to change location all the time and ended up in, a, in someone's apartment somewhere in the outskirts of Moscow or sometimes in some little regional local library. So we did move, but it wasn't dangerous. It wasn't that we were in danger of being arrested. Right. So then you you attended Moscow State University. You got a PhD there. What was your plan at that point? What did you expect your adult life was going to be like? Oh, I didn't expect anything. I I, I don't uh, even now. Ah. I just go with the flow. I, I just, <laughs> it so happened that I did know that uh, when I was in high school that I'm I'm one of those. Um, it's just probably innate. I don't know how it happens, but I'm one of those uh, straight uh, A students. So I, grade-wise, I was uh, many things were open for me, but that only in theory, because as a Jew, most uh, good doors were closed to me, just 100%. Mm. So I didn't, I couldn't even dream of philological uh, department of Moscow University. I couldn't dream of other good things. I didn't to want to go to the literary institute there is some uh, there is a literary institute in, in moscow still is uh, but it was very politicized so i didn't even I, I i wouldn't even go there but it so happened that uh, i was good at math and i would go to these math olympics and i wanted to go to to a place where my exams would be in math not in the history of the communist party which would be the main exam for all humanitarian departments mm-hmm. But it also happened that in, in the ninth grade, I read this germ, old German book on historical geology and just was very much taken with it. it I fell under the spell of uh, geomorphology and the history and the transformation that Earth as a planet goes through and decided to, to study geography. And the chair that I, and I, I got there by miracle, sheer miracle, I don't even know how it happened. That uh, because it was also almost impossible to be enrolled in it for me. But um, I did get in and spent eight years there. I had a few things that I was interested in, but I, I just threw a coin, I tossed a coin. Pretty much, actually, I drew a, a little paper out of a hat uh, after the first year and chose the department like that out of a few things that interested me. And it was a theory of landscape. Oh, and, right. and paleogeography. And this is what I, I studied. Of course, I couldn't find any job there. So all my jobs after after the university were odd jobs. Right. Odd jobs, meaning uh, like working uh, in a restaurant or in an office or that kind of thing? N- not office. Offices. I'm not, I'm not nine to five person, but uh, uh, well, I, I, uh, I was, for example, something you would call it a jockey. Oh, right. Where, uh, and at some point, I um, I did teach for a while at this medical um, vocational school, uh, you would say, um, nursing school. I taught geography and um, I did, uh, I worked as a translator for, um, for this uh, scientific institute. So little things that I could get in that were not very high level yeah. <laughs> uh, positions that would require some appro- um, approval from the party committee of that uh, establishment. Did you feel at the time, what, as you're describing your life uh, up until this point and describing the way that different things affect you and and the memories that you have of them, I feel like it's... Um, it's clear to me that what you really were was a poet. Did you did you think of yourself as a poet at the time or as having a, a poetic sensibility? Yes, I, I thought of myself as a poet. Uh, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't even then, I don't like to call myself a poet now because mm-hmm. it's like calling oneself a genius, you know? Right, right. <laughs> uh, my prof- what's your occupation? I, I'm a genius. So, um, <laughs> but even then there was something wrong in that word. So I tried to... Uh, shy away from the from uttering the word, but yes, I did. My view of myself and my vantage point was a vantage point of a 
of a poet, of course, but I was absolutely sure that that would be something that I would, for the rest of my life, be practicing privately. Yeah, right. Well, I feel like we give that impulse, we give it a bad conception because we sort of look at it as someone who says, oh, I'm a poet, as as someone who wants to be irresponsible, or they're using that as kind of a an excuse for not doing something practical. But in some ways, it's especially if you're if you're determined that it's just something you're going to do uh, privately. In some ways, it seems like it could help someone like you make sense of how your life is going because here you are succeeding in a lot of ways, but obviously it's not quite the right fit. But you have this thing that other people don't have, which is you read two lines of poetry and they electrify you. That's that's the bonus. <laughs> of, of this this kind of sensibility, I guess this is what I'm interested in in life. I I, I one of my books, a Russian book, which is called um, Book of Reflections, it's formed around a big essay, which I would. It's hard to translate it into English. The best way to translate it would be text and desire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is about the relationship, the weave, the weaving of uh, the voices of the reader and the text itself, the text as a being, as a separate being, and a material thing, you know, in a Husserl way, in a a way that uh, Merleau-Ponty would call it touching, right, and Valérie, of course. So this kind of relationship. What were the circumstances where you came to America? I know you ended up at an MFA program at one point. Was that uh, something you could see from where you were and to say, I could go to America and join an MFA program? Or did you just leave and and wind up in America? Or how did that work? Oh, no, it was there were two points that were separated by years. And of course, I never knew I had never known about MFAs there. Yeah, Um, we left because the the wave of anti-Semitism was already quite substantial and mm. was felt and we made this hard decision uh, and uh, we moved uh, there were other things that uh, that were strangely ominous because I, I say strangely because in 1990 in the 1990 1991 things start things was changing very rapidly mm-hmm. and uh, the the society be, became much more fluid and free and flexible and um, Part of me was thinking, why? Well, where am where am I going? It's just uh, this is this is it's so it's so it's going to be so different here. But something in me, I don't want to sound like a prophet, because I'm not. Mm-hmm. But there was something in me that felt I felt uncomfortable, just like in that school meeting. Yeah, uh, there was something, there was something, if not ominous or sinister, there's something uncomfortable there. I I almost saw the martial law coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the middle of all these very lively activity and liberation in in so many ways, so we made that decision and and we left shortly after the coup d'état of 1991 and almost had to stay. If if had it not won, <laughs> we would have to stay and then probably be deported or something because we hadn't had documents already. And then I came to America just without any ambitions, with just to be anonymous in a way yeah and i worked as a many odd jobs really odd jobs like a salesperson in a, in a library and a junior substitute in a nursery school something like this and then an interpreter at a refugee agency uh, in new york nayana and uh, then when the russian immigrants stopped coming and we were all laid off i needed to think about a profession here and i Someone told me that being a teacher is very cool, which I still hold that person responsible. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I became a teacher, and I was a teacher for 12 years, first a substitute teacher, and then a teacher for 12 years, high school math teacher and first science teacher. But at some point, I thought that mm, I would like to teach some poetry, which is a very ridiculous notion, of course. But uh, at that point, I, I, was, I really wanted that. And someone said, you know what? If you want to teach at an MFA, you first need an MFA. Right, <laughs> right. <it> <laughs> uh, so it's kind of embarrassing. So that was actually the impetus. Oh. It was rather practical, I would say. I didn't know what would follow. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with more questions for Irina Mashinsky and her work and Russian poetry. 
Okay, we're back. Irina, you're well positioned to comment on poetry in both Russia and America. And I was wondering if you would say it's more accurate to say, well, poets are poets wherever they live and boundaries don't matter. Or would you say there's something very different about the poetry written in Russia and the poetry written in the United States? I'm not even sure I'm in in them. I'm well so well positioned to mm. say that. And and again, I I try to shy away from generalizations mm-hmm. of that kind. Um, uh, not only because I'm not sure that my view is uh, so um, absolute or even even right, but just because first of all it changes so quickly. Mm. When you say Russia, is it Russia of the 1970s, yeah. 1990s? which right. was a very interesting decade. I spent it here in America and I don't regret it, but there is sometimes I, I wish I were in, 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 in Moscow in the 90s and probably I would be part of, probably I would have been part of the literary world there. And that was a very interesting decade. Then the 2000 and now, and now is a very different time. So of course, writing poetry now in Russia or being part of this, mass exodus of uh, intellectuals from Russia uh, and uh, people of letters uh, to, to, to other countries be part of that or to be an American poet. Of course, it's different. It's different because probably we, we feel this war every morning when we wake up, we feel this thundercloud over our head mm. and just just not because we're so sensitive, but just by we got ourselves into it just by having been born there, mm-hmm. by this connection, which is very complicated and painful with a place, not with the realm. I don't feel part of that realm. Uh, maybe I never even did, certainly not now. But you, we are certainly connected with a place by our by the fact of our birth there. And of course, it's it's different. And do you you write in both Russian and English, right? Yes, <laughs> I'm pausing because when I say writing in English, it's a different process for me. Yeah, uh, it, I would compare it. It's I try not to use metaphors, especially in such cases. But I think it's similar to walking in the in late dusk, late twilight, yeah. or even at night. Uh, in English, for me to write in English, even with the moonlight, which makes it also more, maybe even more magic than for someone for whom the English is native language, the native mother tongue. And um, when I write in Russian, I just walk in broad daylight and the sunlight and see all the minute details and all the connections and all the allusions, which, which um, I, of course, I'm not that sensitive of when uh, I write in English. You said that you try not to use metaphors for things like that, but I thought that was so beautiful. If I could if I could use a metaphor like that, I don't think I would ever stop. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> when you're writing, there's such a burden of history and politics that's overlaid with your experience. Do you feel a freedom as a poet to explore what you want, or do you feel there are obligations and duties and and restrictions that you have on what you can write about or what you should write about? Well, I'm a free person by yeah. nature, so no, I, I don't feel any restrictions mm-hmm. in any way. I, I don't even think that I have any inner censorship, so to speak, inside me. There are certain tastes, and as a, I view myself as a craftsman. Mm-hmm. And as a craftsman, that it also has to do with my, for example, seeing my father in the, early in the morning uh, rolling up his sleeves and by his draft desk, his architectural designs and so, so on. So craftsmen are... I think craftsmen are free. Yeah. So you feel you're doing something similar when you sit down to write poetry, that you you are putting together words in a way that fits a design or that, that kind of builds something, so to speak. Built, yes. Built is a built or um, form. Uh, maybe not sitting down, maybe walking. Uh-huh. Uh, in my, I compose in my head a lot. But in terms of obligation, or rather maybe some kind of a responsibility, 
this book, The Naked World, of course, there was one of the impetuses was to not even to preserve, but to have these voices and their resilience and their dignity. I'm talking about my grandparents' generation who went through all these terror with so much dignity and so much resilience to write about it in a very matter-of-factly way, understated, without effect, the way they lived it. And But this is a responsibility, especially now that the Memorial Society that had been active for 30 years, the Nobel Prize Society, by the way, is banned and closed and all the its, its property is seized by the government. The Memorial Society in Russia was researching the, the story of Gulag and uh, trying to bring back every voice and every, every person, every name. So, of course, part of the impetus in the naked world was to bring that back, to not let them fall into the oblivion. And this is not only about my people, my folks, my, my family. It's about all of them, about people like Varlam Shalamov, the great Russian writer and poet, by the way, Platon. The best were silenced, the best were the victims. So to, that's our debt to them. And I'm, of course, I feel this debt very strongly. The naked world has a, a particular form of, it has short uh, prose sections as well as poetry. Why did you choose to tell the story that way? Oh, the, you know, Jack, I didn't choose. It just, it so happened. Yeah. Uh, when I wasn't, so we're back at my MFA um, interesting period. And uh, there, I, I'm not sure I want my mentors to know that, but I would choose poems to translate into English to to give a, a, a because we had to produce poetry there every semester. <laughs> uh, I chose the, the worst poems, the, word, the the poems of mine that I really didn't care for to translate into English because the best I didn't even know what to do with them. So the, the end, uh, I had this collection, the book, the graduation collection of poems, and it was not. I didn't feel that it was a book. It was still a collection of poems. And the years went by and people published their books, but I kind of, I I couldn't let go. And I was waiting for something. And then 14 years passed. And already I had a publisher on board. I already had a contract and then had that contract extended for another year or two. And I still wasn't ready to publish that book of poems. Some of them were translations. Some of them I wrote in English already. And then the pandemic came in the 2020 I was here in the in this Pennsylvanian house from which I'm talking to you right now, and it's a very thin-walled house, and it was a very cold spring, if you remember. So I was feeding the wood stove <laughs> with, with the drafts of the prose that I started to write somehow. There, I was there in, in for for a month, and probably the reason I wrote that prose that I wrote that I called for myself a tale. Part of it was the story of my grandparents, Alexander and Alexandro, but more than that. I wrote that quickly because I would always run out of, king, of the kingling. And <laughs> I needed, so I needed to, to quickly type up what I wrote in, um, on, on the loose leaves and, and use those drafts <laughs> as kinglings because otherwise my firewood would be no use, right? So <laughs> it was out of necessity. I ended up with some prose and then I, I just started inserting fragments of that prose, which is still here unpublished. I used fragments from that prose as little light bulbs or street lights that illuminated those poems. And it suddenly started melting back with the text. The prose started taking shape, melted it with the poems. And so the, the book was born very accidentally, I would say. Yeah. Could you uh, share uh, an example with us, with the listeners? Well, I can, a poem or prose? Uh, why don't we start with a poem? Okay, so this is the voices, anonymous voices of birds, of different birds. Before dawn. A bird of glass. A bird with a scratched throat. A bird that tries to tell it all at once. A bird that turns its head when cold. A bird that's pinned with hopes. A bird, oh, whoa. A bird that must be turned up louder. 
a tiptoed bird, a bird that types, a bird that strikes a match. Is that bird you? Uh, there are many birds there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's the, multiple birds? <laughs> in the evening, I, I, I strike a match and, and start my wood stove. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but but they're, they're all anonymous. They're all nameless. And, and yeah. they, one of the themes of the book is the name, nameless. Right. Nameless in our life. Right. It's a beautiful poem. I love it. I love the... Uh, the way that it it kind of moves in and out from things that we would expect to be a bird and things that are are clearly not. Thank you, thank <laughs> you. And it's it's part of the first part, which is about this my my childhood. And I was born during the decade of the thaw after Stalin, post-Stalinist yeah. thaw. So this is before dawn in in, in many ways. Yeah. Um, and how about a prose sample, just so the listeners can get a sense of what they might expect? This is the history of literature, right? So this is somehow connected with literature. Yeah. Uh, the bronze horseman, Natasha. Natasha is the name of my mom, a mother. And the book is, by the way, dedicated to my parents and my four grandparents. The uh, bronze horseman, many of your listeners, I'm sure, know that the famous narrative poem by Pushkin, and in the center there is this statue of Peter the Great in St. Petersburg in the Senate Square, uh, which got to be named Bronze Horseman after, after Pushkin, because Pushkin's poem is so popular. So here is the Bronze Horseman, but this one is a different Bronze Horseman. My mother began stuttering when she was nine, and the Germans bombed the train that was slowly taking her and her mother east to the Urals. They had just left Kiev only a couple of weeks before it fell to the Nazis. Ignoring the propaganda that was pouring out of the loudspeakers, my carefree and vivacious grandmother Ophelia put my nine-year-old mother on the track with distant acquaintances who were fleeing the city. I owe my mother's and therefore my own survival to this reluctant decision. It was as an evacuee in the southern Urals that my plump, ballet-taking mother, nourished and adored in equal measure, knew hunger for the first time and began to compose poetry. One of the poems, an elegy that was especially nostalgic and beautifully in verse, opened with quiet, reserved poise. Do you remember Kiev? in the green of the chestnut trees. Ты помнишь Киев в зелени каштану? Praised, according to my grandma Ophelia, by none other than the Ukrainian poet Maxim Rilsky himself, who was evacuated to the same city, it described a horseback statue of Bogdan Khmelnytsky, who dexterously and efficiently fitted into the iambic line together with his horse. It was only much later, during Perestroika, that my mother learned with shock of the ruthless massacres of Jews carried out by her childhood hero. Her stuttering, almost unnoticeable in everyday life, would become painfully manifest when she read to me. That is how I heard the bronze horseman for the first time. And even now, Pushkin's perfect rhythm is syncopated by my memory. Her stuttering magically disappeared in America. We simply noticed one day that it was gone. As I listened to you read, I felt a kind of electrification. I hope you uh, appreciate that, <laughs> that uh, well, you produced I'm, that effect in me. Well, thank you so much, Jack. I'm actually moved by your words. Mm. The book is called The Naked World. The author is our guest, Irina Mashinsky. Irina, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, there we go. That will do it. I felt inspired after talking to her. We can do it, people. We can all conquer new worlds and retain our humanity. We individuals have a lot of power if we follow the lead of strong people like Irina Mashinsky. I learned a lot from that one, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. My thanks to Irina for joining me today. And my thanks, as always, 
to you, episode 501. We are off to a good start on our quest, and we have lots of good episodes coming up. The podcasting world has gotten a little rougher since we started. I know you have lots of options out there now, with celebrity after celebrity jumping into the pool and making a big splash. So I'm very glad you've chosen to give this humble little podcast some of your time as well. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.